Welcome to the Dr. Wyatt Show podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Wyatt Fisher, a licensed psychologist specializing in couples counseling. Today, we have a special guest with us, Rhoda Summer. She's an LCSW, been in private practice for 40 years, podcasting for eight years, and she's been married for 50 years. It's coming August. So she has a wealth of experience and information she's going to share with us today. So thank you, Rhoda, for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Sure, sure. So I invited Rhoda to be on the podcast today, and she is going to talk about divorce, what divorce is all about, what contributes to divorce, how to prevent divorce, how to reduce our risk for divorce. And so this is a topic that a lot of us are curious about considering the high divorce rate. And most of us, when we get married, we do not want to get divorced one day. Unfortunately, that does happen though for a lot of couples. So the first question, Rhoda, I have for you, actually, before we even get into this topic, um, if you could share just a little bit more about yourself, your background, uh, your personal passion for helping couples. Well, I just, I really think that relationships are one of the most important things in life. And I think that people can use all the help they can get because I think relationships are work. Um, I still remember when my sister disagreed with me and said they should be easy. I really believe they take quite a bit of work and that it's important to understand that. Um, I would love to rewrite wedding vows so that people could appreciate and you're committed to doing some work when things begin to fall apart and you're really interested in learning and growing about yourself, not just your partner. And so I really, um, I've always been fascinated. I was in the family therapy systems when it was a big deal at Western Psych. And I went and trained in Gestalt in couples and families. So I've always, always, always had a real passion for working with couples because it's harder. I think it's more challenging. And Mostly because I love how there's more honesty in the room when you have two people instead of one. Mm, What do you mean by that? I mean that they keep each other more honest. And when you have one, you get to steer that story any way you want. And I am very much into the challenge of both supporting and being able to challenge both people. And so when they both trust me and I can get away with saying some really tough things and I can and they know that I care about them at the same time, that's just it's great. It's really great. Yeah, I think that's really some good insights there. Um, and I would I would definitely concur with my experience working with couples where one of the top goals is to build that rapport with both partners. And it's a combination of building rapport and challenging, building rapport and challenging. Um, and you always got to be careful as a couple therapist that you don't challenge one partner more often than you challenge the other partner because then they're going to feel ganged up on. And sometimes that's a challenge, right? Trying mm-hmm. to find something in both partners that you can challenge or, you know, highlight growth areas. Um, but there is definitely a lot of variables to manage as a couple's therapist in the room. Yeah. And I also like your comment how it keeps things more honest because it's true. When you're working with one person, they could be fabricating all sorts of stories, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But if you have the other partner in the room, they're going to call them out and say, that's not true or that's not what's happening Maybe they're being defensive or maybe they are speaking truth. So you definitely have a lot more data to work with when you have a couple in the room. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Super. Okay, so here's the first question, Rhoda. Uh, What's impacting the high divorce rates most? 
I think that respect is more important than love for being able to make relationships work. And why I think respect is so important is because respect gives room for the differences. And I think the bottom line is we all want to marry a clone. We want someone who votes like us. We want someone who thinks like us. We want someone I'd like my husband to drive more aggressively like I do. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so <laughs> many ways that we want more of a clone. And I think that it's that the work, as I mentioned earlier, is about respecting those differences. And at first you fall in love with those differences, you know, because it makes you, it's a missing part inside of you. And we all want to be more whole and more, um, have more of a range to who we are. So we fall in love with a lot of opposite energy and then we get tired of it. So respect helps you commit to doing that work that is really required to be in a relationship. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think, I'm going to quote David Schnark, relationships are people growing machines. And I think that understanding that you have to grow. You have to be willing. Um, my definition of love, you have to be willing to consider my definition of love, which is being able to really understand that differences matter and you respect them. And growing up is honestly facing painful situations. And that means learning new things about you. And I think there's a high divorce rate, partly because people turn their back on that opportunity to learn. And I think that learning is so important to becoming a better person. But it is a risk and it's hard and it makes you a little bit ashamed and it makes you a little squirrely and a little squeamish. Ooh, did I do that? And being able to understand that it's your opportunity to grow. We never stop growing till the day we're dead, if we're lucky. And that's really a commitment to the relationship to be willing to grow yourself and not just look at someone else. So I think that those are important. And the third thing I'm going to say is that staying comfortable is a problem. I think when couples want to stay comfortable and aren't willing to take any risks, and that means doing new things together and finding new things together, and number two, risking more truth. And I can talk more about that later, but I think that when you're more genuine with your partner, then you steer the ship of the relationship both of you have a part in that. And it's messy, just like democracy. Democracy is messy and relationships are messy. You, If one person caters to another person, then it's simpler. And lots of people do that. But if you're going to have a more equal relationship, there's an awful lot of work that goes into understanding each other and making room for those differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, someone said that a quote one time that I really appreciated, and it said, opposites attract and then they attack. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yes, I agree. Yeah, yes. there's a lot of truth in that because yep. we, often, we often are drawn to people who have opposite traits as us, like the yin and the yang, and it kind of feels like it completes us. 
but often it's those very differences that drive us crazy after you're together for a while. But I really appreciate your point of the importance of respecting instead of trying to change our partner. Now, having said that, obviously there's room for mild to moderate compromise to meet in the yes. middle. But you know, it goes so much better if we can start with just respecting and accepting our partner in a lot of ways instead of continually trying to make them into many versions of ourselves. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. So number two, what takes a couple from saying I do to saying I want a divorce? Well, one of my personal feelings is that year six to 10 is when people start scratching their heads and saying, oh my gosh, what am I doing with this person? I don't know why I married them. I think it's an ordinary developmental stage. It's actually one of the things I wish they would put in wedding vows. And in years six to 10, you are committed to looking at yourself in the relationship. I think what happens is the illusions, that wonderful swamp of love that just is excitement and everything's wonderful. Um, Whenever you watch a show on TV and they're constantly kissing because they've just discovered each other, that can last a really long time. But if you listen to a lot of the Hollywood relationships, a lot of the problems start in year six to 10. It's kind of amazing how accurate that um, is. Certainly it can be later. Certainly it can be earlier. Um, And I think that as we already mentioned, it's about not accepting the differences. I think when you do that swamp of love, you're just excited about each other and everything's wonderful. And I think then you have to decide to be able to be uncomfortable and then being able to decide that you're willing to do some hard work. And I think that's a really hard thing to do. It's it's a risk. It can seem much more glamorous to just find somebody else who really thinks you're exciting and interesting and they're not bored with you. Um, and I think doing that work to understand because I think it'll happen in the next relationship. I think that rule of thumb of six to 10 is pretty across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I've said before that marriage is not for sissies. Yeah, so much truth in that, because when the going gets tough, you know, we're not groomed in this culture to be really hardy and resilient. Instead, we're groomed to be the opposite, just to have instant gratification, pleasure, comfort. And so then you get in this marriage and all of a sudden things get tough and we're just not conditioned like our ancestors were to endure hardship and to keep moving and keep trying. And so it, I definitely would agree that this increases the divorce risk because people are too quick and too easy to give up when the going gets tough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 Okay. Question number three, what are some healthy mindsets couples need to reduce their divorce risk? So I think one of the most important is shifting from the negative narrative you have in your head about your partner. And I think what we do is we make up stories about, well, there he goes again. There she goes again. I can't believe it. I'm so tired. They don't turn off the lights. They don't do the dishes. They don't whatever. All that complaining that really builds and layers into stories that you are stuck in your head about. And I think you have to shift some of that energy of those stories. And 
part of that is because we're all annoying. I don't know anybody who's not <laughs> annoying. You know, I'm annoying. I know I'm annoying. And, I, you know, but I accept that I'm annoying. And being able to understand that you have to be, think about generosity. And I think that being generous is not something we advocate very much. Um, I think it fits with um, expectations. I think high expectations can be very unhealthy as a mindset for a couple. Um, I just read the research in the New York Times about Finland being so the happiest country in the world, and it's because they have less expectations. I have a card that I mail to friends that says, if you want to be happier, lower those expectations. And then on the front of it, and then it keeps going lower, lower, lower. And at the bottom of the card, it says, there you go. And I just think there's something about having your expectations of yourself and being able to if he loved me, he wouldn't just bring me chocolate and flowers on Valentine's Day. He'd take me out to dinner. Uh, it's that kind of stuff. And and being grateful for any attention uh, or being grateful for somebody that maybe uh, what some, one of the things I've just talked to two people about is that their partner is a slow digester. That doesn't mean that they're stupid. <laughs> it means they're not quick, fast, efficient, like these kind of other two high-powered partners are. And they take their time with digesting. So turning your criticism into being curious is an excellent, healthy mindset. Being curious, thinking about your partner and thinking, well, maybe that person's a slow digester and they're not stupid, but they don't move as fast as I do. And maybe I've got to get more generous about giving them more time. So, gee, could we talk about this tomorrow morning instead of insisting that we must have this conversation right now because I'm ready to have it? Um, generosity curiosity instead of criticism and a shift from a negative narrative about your partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how much happens in our mind. And if yes. we just let our thoughts run away with us, we can be in trouble. And so learning to capture and counter, you know, what's going through our head plays such huge influence on how we feel and how we behave and there's a lot of that, you know, for all of us who are married over time, there's a lot of negative thinking can go on, negative narratives, negative interpretations. And then the more unhealed trauma we have from our past, the more that can come out with how we're interpreting our partner, that they're unsafe or they don't love me or they're, they're out for their own good. And lo and behold, that may be things that we felt growing up. So all sorts of stuff can get in there with our mindset, which is really uh, fascinating or even looking up narcissistic on the internet and deciding your partner's narcissistic. When I, as a therapist for more than 40 years, am very careful with that diagnosis. There is self, it's a continuum. There's selfishness, there's the disease of narcissism, but it, there's a whole continuum in between. And sure. I think when people look up and I, I'm just so sick of hearing people say that about their partners, seriously. And I'm kind of like, whoa, slow down, you know. Yeah self-absorbed maybe, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I appreciate that comment, how it's a continuum because all of us are selfish by nature. If we're yes. honest, you know, all of us have a, a self-interest first type of orientation just because we're human. 
And so it is a continuum where, okay, how much on that continuum, where does it cross over where it's toxic and destructive or how much is it just human? So it's kind of, you know, discerning that. Are you tired of all the conflict? Are you tired of not having your needs met? Are you tired of feeling tired? The solution is my marriage boot camp. In it, you'll receive hope, you'll receive direction, and you'll receive healing. And at only $49 a month per couple, it's the most affordable resource to restore your relationship. So get started today, and I hope to see you inside of the boot camp. Okay, so number four here, Rhoda, the fourth question I have for you on divorce. What are some top habits couples need need to reduce their divorce risk? One of my personal favorites is to not blame. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of self-righteousness in the delightful activity of blame. You know, when we blame people, we're kind of off the hook and being off the hook is delightful. Um, And it's so much better. And I love that AA expression that when you point the finger of blame, there's three fingers pointing back at you. So I think being able Uh, So I'm going to build on that and say that being able to take responsibility and being willing to confront yourself and looking at your part in the problem. Uh, You may have lots of ideas about your partner's contribution to the problem, but being able to also think about what your part in the problem is. Arguments would go a heck of a lot better if people would begin by owning their part. I'm sorry, I know I'm a backseat driver. It is my worst thing as a cup, as a person partner. I, I am a backseat driver. Especially, and I, especially I, if you're the more aggressive driver. Yes, yes. It's hard yes. to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And you know, so what I'm gonna do, which is actually what I have been doing, is I'll read a book and I'm not gonna watch and I'm not gonna boss you around. And I know it's a bad thing that I do that, and I'm sorry. So if you start an argument owning your part of what it is that you feel contributes to the problem before you say what the other person does, I think it would help a lot. And then the last thing that I think really matters is being able to be vulnerable. So if you can say uh, a story, something about why this is important to you, what something that happened in childhood that gets you kind of defensive, uh, owning your defensiveness, anything that helps fatten that story about what it is that is why this is important to you, why it matters to you. And if you can fatten up that story, I think it'll make a real difference because then your partner has more context for understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge fan of taking ownership for your part. And so that's a that's a huge thing that I think is missing for a lot of partners. And one thing that I teach around that is there's freedom with what part you own. Because your partner might bring up saying, hey, you do X, Y, and Z. And then we feel pressure that we have to accept that entire complaint. And because we don't agree with all of it, we push back and defend against the entire thing and deny all of it. However, if we can consider what I call the 50% rule, which is from this complaint, what's the piece, what's the part that I know in my heart of hearts I could improve on, or I could do better at, or I'm guilty of, if I'm in control of deciding what that is, 
then my defense walls go down and I'm more likely to latch onto something that I can own with sincerity. And that keeps my internal motivation higher to do something about it as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's and it's huge. hard to be vulnerable. We have, we really in this culture, we feel like putting on a strong front, yeah. you know, is the most important thing. Sure. Okay. Question number five: What behaviors increase divorce risk the most? So, one of the things that I talk about a lot is stashing and storing up resentments. And that is such, you know, I want to be the nice guy. So if I'm actually, I don't do this, <laughs> but because I'm not a people pleaser in my life, but and I think of many people who want to people please, who want to be nice and everybody want, most people want to be nice, that there's a way that you swallow your wants. You may not even be aware of your wants. And then what happens is, and I, I'm, I'm so aware of using my hands as we talk and I keep bumping the microphone, but the more we layer the resentments up into a big, big pile, the more that we do that, the more we create distance. And that distance means that somebody doesn't really know who you are. They don't know how you feel. And then what generally happens, and I think this is pretty ordinary, is that you save up a stash and then at a certain point you get to cash them in and you get to have a big blow up and you dump the kitchen sink and you dump everything that you've been hoarding away. And the other person's just like, whoa, uh, what's going on? And they can't kind of even put their arms around it. They can't grasp it in any way because it's such a dump. And so I think that that really increases uh, the, the increases divorce risk. And I think it's such an important thing to be able to know what you want. And I think underneath anger, um, I just said this to a really good friend of mine, and she was talking about how she's feeling really crabby with everybody. And she might be the most fabulous grandmother I know. She's an artist and she's wonderful. And she said, um, and she's so proud of watching her grandson for four days a week. And, and I said, is there something you want underneath this anger? And she later on in the lunch, she said, you know, I want more time for my art. And I thought, I bet you do. And I, it was so much fun to help her figure that out. And I don't know what, and I don't care what she does with it. That's up to her. I'm not a therapist. I'm just a really good friend. And I wanted her to think about what her wants were underneath that anger. So I think that's incredibly important. And it helps you be more real about who you are, more authentic. The other big thing that I think is, is um, increases divorce risk is the way that people think, and I call it black, white, 110, thinking and feeling. 
And what I mean by that is there's no gray middle ground, messy middle ground in between the black and white or the four, five, six, or seven, whichever way of thinking about it is helpful. And I think therapy is an awful lot of working in that middle ground. When you see two people, you're helping them see each other in this messy middle ground. But when you're rigid and this is right and this is wrong and this is the way it happens has to be done. The more rigid you are, I think the harder it's going to be. And I think it'll increase the divorce risk because you've got to negotiate and you've got to be able to talk over things. And I think that's incredibly important. Yes. Yeah. Sharing power, being willing to compromise. So you both have an equal voice. That's essential. And I also appreciate your point that you brought up with building up resentments, because that is the top thing that I see as well with couples in my practice. And as I mentioned before in my podcast, when I see couples, the very first thing I do with them is have them create a list of all the different resentments they each have. And then we work through them one at a time with one of my tools so that they can eventually start growing closer again, because with, with all those unresolved resentments, it creates so many walls and so many divisions. So whether you're the person building up the resentments or you're blindsided on the other side, it's a horrible experience for both. Yes. And it's inevitable, right? So your partner's imperfect needs are not going to be met perfectly. And then we're not taught what to do with those hurt feelings. So a lot of people stuff them down or, and then they detach or they become passive aggressive or eventually it blows up. Um, that's the stuff where we need help is how do we work through those resentments? Cause I would agree. And when we resent, it's almost like something rotting. If you think of like, mm. like an, an old boiled egg, yes. <laughs> like yeah. it starts to rot and smell. That's kind of what resentment does in our heart. Absolutely. You know, over time, it just rots away and it turns our heart cold and bitter. And so the longer that festers, you know, the, the higher the risk for the relationship. One of the reasons I really enjoy podcasting and talking to other therapists is I like your language. It's different, different images. And, you know, and there's, and there's, you've got to try as many ways as you can to give people ideas to latch on to. And it's really fun to hear a different way to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. That's how I feel talking to you. I was like, wow, this is so fascinating because I'm always using my language, but then to hear your language and see where it lines up is really, it's really inspiring. Yeah, it is fun. Okay, let's see here. Question number six. Uh, What would you recommend to couples who are wondering if they should get a divorce? So I think that you have, number one, you have to be able to be more honest. And I think you've got to be able to talk about what bugs you. I think it can help if too much is piled up to get a therapist. Obviously, we're in the business. We both think that way. But I think being able to open that up, even if you end up with a divorce. And I've said this, I have a couple, I keep saying this over and over because they can't decide, but I've said talking and being honest with each other and the process we're going through it, whether you get divorced or not, this is going to help you be better people either with each other or the next time around. And I do believe that once you've hit a big crisis, like an affair, that 
it's an opportunity to really build an infrastructure that works because love is not enough. So it's after in years six to 10, it may be a crisis, but it's an opportunity to build an infrastructure. Now, maybe forgiveness isn't going to happen and it's a messy path. I'm certainly not saying it's got to go in one direction, but I think you have to begin there is being uncomfortable and being able to to say more about the things that bother you and trying to solve it with the help of someone else. The second thing I think is really important is accepting that arguments are a part of life. You know, it's just, they're ordinary. This isn't, we're not trying to have a relationship with no arguments that that's like, you know, I don't know, some other land of idealism. It's not in reality. And being able to think about arguments. And one of the techniques that I uh, give to my couples is, and I really like this because arguments tend to be all about feelings, very messy feelings all floating around. And what I say to people is just either of you can make a tea for timeout and then get a piece of paper and a pen, write down what's important to you about the argument. And then this is the important part. Write down what's important to the other person. And the reason I like this so much is it gets you thinking. You have to get out of that little envelope of feeling uh, things are unjust or that things are should be your way or whatever it is that's going on. And it makes you think about what is important to the other person. And being able to think about that instead of feeling it, is going to help you be able to talk. And I say you don't have to talk in 20 minutes. You could talk the next morning, whatever. But that would be another thing. Whatever your arguments are, try that and see how much you really understand about what matters to the other person. And then the third thing, and I learned this in all my Gestalt training, and um, I had fabulous, fabulous mentors. Uh, Laura Pearl started the Cleveland School. I learned from everybody directly taught by Laura. And she was elegant, unlike Fritz. Uh, One of the things you have to do is talk about hard things. And it may take 25 to 50 conversations to soften the edges of the differences. And I I say to people, think about Play-Doh. When, you know, it gets all hard in the can, you know, my kids are grown, but when it gets all hard in the can and you have to roll it around in your hands to soften it up, that's what 25 to 50 conversations and and people think you're going to have one magical conversation and you're going to solve it. And I think if you have a mindset of 25 maybe 30, maybe 15. It's not a rule, but you have to keep talking to soften. And you want to be able to do that, whether you get a divorce or you don't get a divorce. You want to be able to talk to each other. Maybe you're going to be raising kids together. Maybe you're going to see each other at a friend's wedding, but you want to be able to practice. And I I always say to people, think of this as practice, okay? You've just, you've got to practice talking about what's hard, especially in a culture where 
everything is short circuited with texting. I am so, I get so many text conversations in therapy and, you know, it, well, then he said this and then she said this and, you know, and it's like, yeah, but we won't really know what the tone was or the emotions were. And then the last thing I would say is find a therapist, which I said in the beginning, because you do need support to see if it's the right thing to do and, and wander around in that messiness. I always say that wandering around is okay. It, you don't have to know. You have to wander around in the messiness of understanding each other. And then you're going to know. You're going to figure it out. But I would. I don't have a deadline for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your first uh example there or recommendation of having couples think about, you know, what's my partner also thinking? I actually read a study on that, an empirical study. This has been quite a few years ago. Maybe you read the same one and that's exactly what they recommended. They said, when a couple has a conflict, have them write down the conflict as if they are their partner (laughs) talking about, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking as if they are their partner because of what you said, which is it really spikes your empathy to be able to put yourself in your partner's shoes, see it from their lens, try to identify what they're thinking and feeling. I used to do that with couples every time. And I would have them then read out loud as if they're their partner. And then they could confirm or edit based on what they hear. Like, yes. oh yeah, that's correct. That is what I'm thinking. Or, oh no, that's correct. But this part's that's not what I'm yeah, thinking. Right, right, right. Digesting so also, it. Yeah. So it's also good for clarifying communication because often there's miscommunication around what the other person is thinking and feeling. So it's a really a creative way to help couples get unstuck sometimes is help them put their themselves in their partner's shoes. And I didn't see that study, but the reason I think it's important people write their ideas first, it's almost like they've got to clear the decks and get it out of their head. So then they can really think about their partner's point. So sure. yeah, no, I sure. made it up. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, Rhoda. So if all the listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about you, what's the best place for them to find you? So I have a website with over 450 pages of free information uh, at therapyideas.net. And then my podcast is What Healthy Couples Know That You Don't. uh, That's been going for eight years. And I really am proud of it because I think there's a lot of great information and I don't make a dime. Awesome. Thank you, Rhoda. I appreciate you again being on the Dr. Wyatt Show. Thank you. I was glad to be here. Be sure to grab your free worksheet on the podcast episode today with application questions. You can find that worksheet in the description and show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode today, be sure to leave a review and share this episode with one other person. Remember, your marriage is alive. If you care for it and nurture it, it will grow. If you deprive it and neglect it, it will wilt and die. The choice is up to you. Take care.